So this passage that was read earlier uh, describes an encounter between the resurrected Jesus and an apostle named Thomas. Now, because we're talking about Thomas, I need to say something. Because I think Thomas has been typecast. Do you know what typecasting is? I mean, it's used in the film, movie industry. It's that process, process by which a particular actor or actress becomes strongly identified with a specific character. So, if I say to you, Jim Carrey, Will Ferrell, what, who do you th- what do you think about? You think comedians, right? I think goofballs. I mean, I don't like them at all as actors. So there you go. If, if, if I say Mario Moreno, those of you who are from Mexico, you're not going to think, you know, uh, he, he plays on a Jason Bourne sort of movie. No, Mario Moreno is Cantinflas. He will always be Cantinflas, right? If I say to you, uh, Leonard Nimoy, and even though he's played in all other kinds of movies, you will always remember him as Spock of Star Trek. That's right. Long live and prosper. Yeah, he will always be stoic, unemotional, logical. And when we talk about Thomas, come on, honestly, what comes to your mind? Doubting Thomas. Thomas the doubter. Well, I want to debunk that today. I mean, it's true in part that he was a doubter, that he had disbelief. But hold on a second. Didn't all the other apostles also have doubts? Oh, surely they did. How come it's not doubting Peter and doubting James and doubting John? See, there's more to Thomas than just the fact that he doubted in this moment of his life. See, let me give you a little backstory. John chapter 11 here, Jesus and the disciples are not too far away from Bethany, all right? And they're having a discussion about going back to the town of Bethany because that's where Lazarus had died. That was his hometown, and he's dead, and Jesus is going to go back to Bethany, and he's going to raise him from the dead. Now, Thomas, you know, he's thinking about this. He goes, okay, we're going back to Bethany, but I know that there are Jewish leaders nearby, and they want to kill Jesus. And so, you know what Thomas says? He speaks up, and he says, Lord, let us go also that we may die with him. Huh? Let us go also that we may die with him. So what do you find? You find a man who's committed, who's loyal. And then fast forward, John 14. Jesus says, you know, I'm going to go away. I'm going to die. I'm going to go away. And I'm, but I go away to prepare a place for you. And so that where I am, you may be. And Thomas, you know, he's kind of looking, has his glazed look over his eyes. And he says, no comprendo. I have no idea what you say. And he's probably speaking for the other apostles. And he says, look, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. How in the world will we get there? He's a straightforward sort of guy. You see, yeah, when we come to chapter 20, he disbelieves. But how does it end? It doesn't end with him disbelieving and doubting. It ends with him making this magnificent confession of belief, my Lord and my God. So I want to recast him in your mind as Thomas the Believer, Believing Thomas. And I think this story helps us to understand our Christian life. Because isn't it not true that you, on some level, you're committed to Christ? But does that eliminate all doubt and disbelief? Absolutely not. 
You see, just because we say we have faith and we have genuine faith, it doesn't mean that there's not areas of doubt and disbelief in our lives. And we live with that tension of believing and not believing. That's why sometimes we all identify with that man who came to Jesus. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. So we want to look at that this morning, but we also want to look more importantly at this resurrected Jesus. Because this story is really about how this risen Jesus works his powerful grace in disbelieving Thomas's, Maria's, Manuel, Anna's, Mike's, Jane's, whoever it might be. It's a story of how he, the resurrected Lord who has all power, how he works in us who struggle to believe or who can't believe because you think you can believe on your own? Oh no. How in the world are you going to get out of your disbelief? You're just going to go read a book? And that's going to change your mind just like that? Oh, if it were that easy. So look with me in this passage. We'll look at it under three headings. Admitting unbelief, encountering the wounded, risen Jesus, and responding in worship. So first of all, admitting unbelief. In verse 24 of John 20, it says, So Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin. So Thomas had a twin sister or brother. We don't know. He was not with them when Jesus came. The Apostle John, in recording this, is reminding us that on the previous Sunday evening, the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection, the apostles, the ten apostles had gathered together. And Jesus appeared and stood among them. And he showed them his hands and his side. And those ten believed. Thomas was not there. Judas was not there, obviously. But Thomas was not there at that initial appearance of Jesus. So in verse 25, what happens? So after that encounter, the apostles find Thomas somewhere and they say to him something to this effect. You're not going to believe it, Thomas. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas responds, you're right. I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it unless, hear this conditions, unless... I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. I will never believe. You ever find people like that? There is no way that I will ever believe. Now, why the disbelief? I mean, on one hand, Thomas should have believed. I mean, he had been... He had done life together with these other apostles, right? He knew them relatively well. He ate with them. He walked with them. He learned from Jesus just like they did. Why in the world would he think that they would lie to him? They're not liars. They weren't nutcases. He should have believed, but he wasn't buying it. He should have believed because before Jesus died, and Thomas heard this with his own ears multiple times, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. But he wouldn't believe. He disbelieved. Let me ask you, why do you disbelieve? Why does anybody disbelieve? It's, It's a complex question. Because disbelief has its roots in different things. I mean, some people disbelieve because simply because they're ignorant. They don't know the scriptures. And so you bring them to the Bible and they go, oh, okay, now I get it. 
Other people disbelieve because of a crisis. A loved one dies. And they struggle with it. And they go, I can't believe in, you know, in a God who let my little child die. And that's my neighbor down the street. 22 years ago, her little child died. And she has not been back to church. And she says, I just don't believe in God anymore. And that's a reality. And then there's some people who disbelieve because day one, they've taken a little step of unbelief, some little bad decision that they've made. And then day two, another bad decision, sinful decision. And they've done this for months and then for years. And one day they wake up because, you know, I really don't believe this anymore. I don't believe in this Christianity anymore. See, it's complex. But how and why did Thomas disbelieve when he had all this testimony and all the reasons to believe? I think maybe we can describe it like this. Because he was experiencing a hurtful, a deeply hurtful disappointment. He's trying to make sense of all the things that happened several days or a week before. And he just can't put the, the dots together. It doesn't make sense to him when he thinks about the death of Jesus. And sometimes we just disbelieve simply because we don't know how to connect it. It just doesn't make sense to us. I mean, Thomas followed Jesus for three years. He thought he knew them relatively well. He ate with him. He walked with him. He sat at his feet. He learned from him. And then he dies. But not just the death of a loved one, which is tragic. No. As a Jew, he knew that God would send the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who would come to redeem and rescue his people. See, don't you remember Peter made that very clear? In Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So they understood. They, they believed that he was the Christ. But here's, as a Jew, he understood one thing as well. The Messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't die. How can he rescue? He had hoped he would be the Messiah. I mean, he had seen him do these miracles and multiply the bread and the fish. He had seen him cast out demons. He heard the demons shriek. He saw Jesus do that. He saw Jesus when he stood up on the boat and the disciples were on the boat in the midst of the storm. And Jesus stood up and just said, Stop! And it stopped. Oh, he had hoped he would be the Messiah. But then he saw how they took him, they beat him, they mocked him, they crucified him. I saw him die. I saw him, his body taken down. I saw his body placed in the tomb. I saw how they rolled the stone in front of a tomb. And no one ever comes out of a tomb. The dead are not made undead. There's no life beyond the grave. Oh no, I won't believe. See, if you can get yourself into his life a bit. Let me ask you this. What's the nature of your unbelief? You have the word of God. All right. You've not seen the physical, you know, bodily Jesus, all right? And Jesus says, you know, later on, blessed are you, you know, who believe, who have not seen me. We have the word of God. We have the testimony of eyewitnesses. that has been corroborated time and time again. 
people who've seen this, it's there. You ought to believe it. Let me ask you, you don't always believe, do you? I don't. We have doubts that creep in because there's things that happen in life and we just don't know how to put the dots together. We don't know how to make sense of it. And you say, no, no, it's, that's not me. I never disbelieve. And I say, okay, well, I hope that's true, but let me ask you a question. Do you ever worry? Do you ever get anxious? Do you ever fret about your children, about finances, about your future? Do you ever, in a moment of crisis, ask and cry out, God, where are you? When you know what the scripture says about God and his sovereignty, when you know that this resurrected Lord has all authority and power, he has triumphed over sin and death, don't you think he can provide for you? And provide for your family, for your children? But you doubt it in that moment, don't you? See, we all struggle with disbelief in different ways. So would you admit it? Would you admit it? Because when you admit it, This is how the Holy Spirit works to bring you to faith. My life prior to uh, being rescued by Jesus was marked by, I'll just say it this way, selfishness and a lot of immorality. And when Jesus got a hold of my life, uh, I mean, you know, started this process of cleaning me up and I was happy to change. I was happy to to do things differently and relate to people differently. But you know the truth is it wasn't long before those sinful habits that I had for so many years started to creep right back up into my life and drag me right down into the pit of guilt and shame and embarrassment. I was embarrassed that I as a Christian would still sin like that. In the midst of my struggle feeling defeated one day I took my Bible I opened my Bible up and I was going to read I stopped and I closed it I said to God you said you would save me from my sin your word says that you're powerful to change me but why Why am I still struggling with sin? Why don't you take your power and stop me from the sin that I commit? Why don't you take your power and change me right now? I am not going to open this Bible again until you show me your power. Don't ever do that. Don't do that. You know what I was doing as I think about that? I was putting conditions on God just like Thomas is doing. And I realized that what I actually was doing is I wasn't trusting God. But I wanted God to do something for me. I had developed this, this idol. This idol of him changing me. And certainly he wants to do that. But he was calling me to trust him. Would you admit your unbelief and your doubt? How do we overcome this? As I said earlier, it's not something that's natural to us to overcome our own belief or our disbelief. Let me just pause for a moment. When we talk about believing, and if you look in this passage, verses 29 to 31, believing appears, or believe, appears six times. Six times. Six times. 
And believe or faith, according to theologians, they talk about it in three different aspects. One aspect of belief or faith is that of knowledge. You have to know something about God and about who Jesus is. You have to know that. But it's not enough just to know. You also have to have agreement with what you know. You have to assent to it. Right? So there has to be knowledge. There has to be assent. Because there are some people who say, okay, I've read this. I understand it. I don't agree with it. There are other people who say, I've read this. I've read the scriptures. Right? And I agree with it. But that's still not the kind of faith that the Lord wants to bring us to. There's a third element. And that is the element of entrusting your life to God. Submitting yourself. Surrendering yourself. You see, if believing and overcoming all doubt and disbelief depended on us, none of us would believe. None of us would believe. Why? The scriptures say very plainly, there's a big problem. And it's our heart, as we'll see in a moment. And the scripture says as well that faith is a gift. Faith is the gift from the Lord. This resting, this trusting. So you need to know, you need to agree, but you need to act on that and rest in what you know. And live out of what you know. That's the kind of trust. That's the kind of believing that we are called to. And the only one who gets us there is Jesus. And he does that by his spirit. And so that brings us to the second point, encountering the wounded, risen Lord. Because let's see what Jesus does with Thomas to get him to believe. So a week later, eight days later in some of your versions, so the following Sunday, the disciples are gathered once again. But on this occasion, Thomas is with them. Jesus enters the room just as he had done before. You know, the doors are locked. Did you get that detail? The doors are locked. It's not like he had the key to the door. He just supernaturally goes right on through. You see, sometimes you and I in our disbelief and our doubts, we want to lock ourselves in and we say, you know, there's nobody's going to get to me. And Jesus says, I am coming after you because if I died for you, if I shed my blood for you, I'm going to redeem you and I'm going to deal with you every moment of every day. And I want you to rest in me and there is no locked door that will keep me out. I'll praise God for that. And so, what we find... We find him doing, he stood among them and he says, peace be with you. And then, although the other apostles are there, he speaks directly to Thomas. This is a one-on-one conversation, but the other apostles are listening. I wish I had been there to record that. Like their jaws drop, they go, wow, man, you're really getting the second degree. And Jesus says to, to Thomas, Verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I mean, you think about this, this is rather gross. You ever been to the hospital, somebody has some wounds, some incisions, and you go to them, hey, you know, I really don't believe you had the surgery. Can you lift up your gown so I can put my finger in it? You just don't do that. You don't do that. And so Jesus saying, yeah, look at this wound on my side. You know, he lifts up his tunic, go ahead, stick your finger in here. 
need to ask this question. What's Jesus' goal? Is his goal simply to say, Thomas, you're wrong and I'm right? A lot of us love that. That's when we have arguments with our wives, our children. You're wrong and I'm right. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling victorious. Thank you very much. That's not his goal. I remember the first time I went to a debate on the, university, on the campus of the University of Delaware. It was a debate between a Christian and an atheist. And it was just wonderful. This is exchanged back and forth. So the Christian would make a point and all the Christians in the audience would applaud. Yeah, way to go, Christian. And then, and then the atheist would give his rebuttal and make another point. And all the atheists in the audience is, yeah, yay, we're more right than you. <laughs> yeah, is, it, is it a question of being more right? Because at the end of the debate... You know, it's the atheists and Christians are both arguing with each other and say, no, we're more right than you. We won this debate. No, we won this debate. Is that what it's about? No, it's not about winning a debate. Jesus is not interested in being right. He knows he's right. What he's interested in is Thomas's heart. Because the reason we don't believe everything that God has written the reason we don't believe everything that's implied in the resurrected Jesus is because something in our heart, in our desire, in our will, that's the fundamental problem. And so Jesus is going after the heart. About a year ago, I was having this conversation with a young Christian man, a professing Christian, and he shared with me how he was abandoning his marriage. And I, and along with other people, were talking to him and explained to him what the Word of God says concerning marriage and divorce. We talked about the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus, about the power of the gospel. And he just would have nothing of it. He just shrugged it off. Then about a month later, he calls me and he says, you know, somebody else has talked to me. And at first, I shrugged him off. But that night and the next night, I just couldn't go to sleep. And two days later, he repented and he went back to his wife. Why? Because God, by His Holy Spirit, did something in His heart. He had the knowledge. He agreed, yeah, that's not right. But it was the work of the Spirit, the living Jesus, to bring it to His heart. See, Jesus has a goal with you and me to change our hearts so that with a whole heart we rest on Him, that we surrender ourselves to Him. So how does he do it with Thomas? He condescends. In verse 27, the end, he says, do not disbelieve but believe. So you can interpret that as a slight rebuke. Right? He's correcting him. But it is astounding to me that he's so tender. He's so gentle. You know, if I had suffered like Jesus did, if I had died, and if I had gone through all the things that Jesus did, and people didn't believe me on the other end, you know, I'd be a little miffed. I would just be a little irritated. What's wrong with you? Are you stupid? That's why I'm not the Redeemer. Just in case you were wondering. He condescends to Thomas and offers him exactly what he wanted. That's astounding. He didn't have to. Because what he wanted, it's probably not right, not good, not necessary. See, Thomas wanted to see the nail marks in his hands. And here's Jesus in front of him and he's extending his hands, I would imagine. And he sees it. And Thomas wanted, you know, to put his finger in the nail marks of his hand. And Jesus says, reach out. Put 
forward, your finger here, and see my hand. And that word, to put, and put is too, too light of a word. It's a stronger word in the Greek. It really, it, it's a word that's used to throw or to thrust. Go ahead, jab with your finger. Put it into my wound in my hand. And raising his tunic, says the same thing. Go ahead, jab this wound in my side. Let me ask you this. Why didn't Jesus say, put your finger in the wounds in my feet? You know he had wounds in his feet, right? His feet were nailed as well. Why didn't Jesus say, put your, wound, your finger, your hands in the wounds in my feet? You think about that. They say, well, Thomas didn't demand that. So then it raises the question. How did he know exactly what Thomas wanted? He wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there when he said this to the disciples. Did Jesus show up to the disciples midweek and say, hey, you know, and the disciples, they snitched on Thomas. You should have heard what he said. And so Jesus said, well, thanks. I really needed to know that. I don't think that's the way it happened. How did Jesus know You hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. Jesus condescends to Thomas, meeting his demands. And and it's while Thomas is looking at the wounds, and most biblical scholars don't believe that he actually touched the wounds. Although all the artists back three, four hundred years ago or more, they all think that Jesus did. But whatever the case... Jesus connects believing, because that's what he says, don't disbelieve but believe. He connects the believing to the wounds that he sustained on the cross. And you can't miss that. The risen Lord, this Jesus who even today glorified, exalted to the right hand of God, has wounds yet visible. And he's pointing Thomas. He says, look at these wounds. He doesn't say, Thomas, you know what? You've really messed up. You remember the things I taught? I want you to, to obey my teaching. Why doesn't he talk about his teaching? I mean, his teachings are good. They're right. Why doesn't he talk about them? Because the teachings are about what we do. And the gospel is about what Jesus did. Teaching is what you do. The gospel is what Jesus did. Teaching. Is you trying to live a life that pleases God. And the gospel is, you cannot live that life that Jesus calls you to live. You obey. You don't obey all those teachings. But Jesus has for you in your place. That's the gospel. And he wants us, and he's directing us back to the gospel. There, before his eyes. Because what's going to melt our disbelief is an apprehension given by the Holy Spirit of the wounds of Christ, of his suffering for you and for me. Uh, how he took upon your, himself your sin and how he suffered in your place. Because he loves you. That's what's going to melt your heart. Robert Murray McShane, 150, almost 200 years ago, He wrote this, he says, For every look at yourself, at your sinful self, 
take ten looks at Christ. For every look at your disbelief, take ten looks at the wounds of the risen Lord. Think about that. Meditate on that. Let that get into your soul so that your disbelief might melt. And so finally we come to how does Thomas respond and responding in worship which is our response, proper response as well. So here's Thomas. Jesus just appears. And I asked my wife as well, if you were Thomas and Jesus just appeared to you, what would you do? I said, I'd probably faint. I, that's probably a good response. You know, some of us would probably say, hey, can, what was the door thing? How'd you get through the door? Some of us are so inquisitive, right? And he doesn't say, hey, you're alive. His response is, my Lord and my God. It's just astounding. It was like, who knows what he was thinking, but he just goes, cuts through the chase. And he gets, with his declaration of Jesus as Lord and God. See, Lord is a title reserved in the Old Testament. It's a title, it's, it translates Adonai, a title for God in the Old Testament. And you actually see the same phrase in Psalm 35, that there is reversed, my God and my Lord. And it's a clear reference to deity, to God. And here's Thomas. His response is, you know, I recognize you as my Lord and my God. You are the sovereign one. You have all rule and authority and power. And I submit myself to you. I surrender myself to you. You see, that's a third element of faith. I entrust, I submit, I surrender myself to you. And he expresses that surrender in worshiping Jesus. Now, for those of you who might be skeptics about the deity of Christ, notice that Jesus does not say, you know, no, Thomas, you've just gone too far. You know, I'm really a good prophet, but that's all. You know, you call me Lord and God, well, you've gone too far. He doesn't deny it. And this expression of worship before Jesus, the risen Jesus, Jesus doesn't refuse it which tells you one of two things, right? Either he is Lord and God and worthy of all our worship, or he is the most unscrupulous, deceitful, malicious, conniving, liar, or lunatic. There is no in-between. There is no in-between. But Thomas has it clear. He is Lord and God. But that declaration, it comes so quickly. You want, I, I want to think there was something that happened in his mind that brought him to this point. So I imagine something like this. That somehow in those you know, seconds before he declared this about Jesus, that he was rehearsing in his mind the declarations that Jesus had made. The declarations when Jesus said, for example, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. You think all these things are rushing back into his mind. And then he's asking the question, how did he know what I demanded? 
How does anybody know what's in my heart would have been spoken in secret? Oh, but God, only God would know that. Only God would know what's in the heart of man. And the fact that this one who is God standing right in front of me, but he's also a man. And he's alive. He said that he was God. He was the son of man. I, I, I should have known that he was this God man. And that he was God that come in the flesh. He took on a body so that he would die on the cross in my place. All the and those wounds, those aren't ordinary wounds. Those are he was wounded for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquity. Oh, and at the cross, as he agonized, as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken for me, for me. And those words, those words, peace be with you. Oh, now I get it. I have peace with God by means of his shed blood in his life. The Father accepted the sacrifice of the God-man as sufficient payment for my sins. You see, that's what brought him to this place of declaring my Lord and my God. One who had thought that death had the last word and he realized in that instant that he was loved, that his sins were forgiven, that he was not forgotten by this Savior. And you go in life and you have your doubts and you've been living with your doubts and disbelief for a long time, for many years. And you think the Lord, the risen Lord has forgotten you. And the resurrection Sunday is here to declare to you, he has not forgotten. He's going to deal with you in your doubts, in your disbelief, no matter where you are or what the cause. Because if he has purchased you by his blood, he will ensure you rest and are fully united to him. He will not lose one, not one, for whom he shed his blood. And no one goes into heaven limping. John, in verses 30 and 31, he says that these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So let me address three groups of people. If you're here and you say, like Thomas, I will never believe. I am a skeptic through and through. You know, even if Jesus were to appear before you, you would probably still be skeptical. Truth be told. I want you to consider something. This what we talked about earlier, that faith is a gift. Perhaps you've tried to believe and you go, I just can't, I just can't kind of muster up this faith, whatever this is. I just can't believe. Would you pray? Would you pray? Yes, study the scriptures. Read the Bible. Don't, don't ever say, I refuse to believe and never read the scriptures. Because then you're acting irrationally. Read the scriptures. At the same time, ask for the gift of faith. The second group of people uh, uh, is a group of people that say, I believe, 
but don't find uh, the worship of Jesus to be beautiful nor delightful. Are you in that group? Yeah, I believe I have this knowledge about God and about Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross. But you know what? I don't really pray. I don't really worship. There's really nothing in my heart that inclines me to worship. Then perhaps you are at a place where you've not submitted yourself to the Lord. You have the right knowledge, the assent, but no surrender to the Lord. And you know what I want you to pray? God, give me grateful knees. Give me grateful knees. Many of you know of uh, the Christian woman and writer Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson has uh, been a Christian for many years, but one of the things that is unique to her is that she's been paralyzed from the neck down for over 50 years. And she's been serving the Lord joyfully in the midst of the struggle for many years. And she tells her one time she was in a convention. And the speaker asked everyone at the end of the convention to kneel for prayer. As a paraplegic, she couldn't kneel. She remained in a wheelchair. She wrote this. I cried, not because I felt awkward, but because I was struck with the beauty of seeing so many people bow in worship. She prayed, Lord Jesus, I can't wait for the day when I will rise up on resurrection legs. The first thing I will do is to drop ungrateful knees. If there ever was a woman who had reason to disbelieve, but such is her surrender to the Lord that she thinks about the day that she has glorified knees, she will drop to her knees. If you don't drop to your knees sometime in your life to worship Him, oh, beg, beg the Lord that He would give you that kind of faith. And the resurrected Jesus is happy to do so. And then for all of us, do we have, do we have life today? You know, we can think about Easter and we can go through all the historical facts and we can go through all the arguments of the resurrection, but I want to ask you on a personal, subjective basis, is it Easter today for you? There's a pastor from Norway uh, many years ago, and he told of an encounter uh, between himself and this man named Christopher. This is before second, the Second World War, a long time ago. And so um, he went one day to a hospital ward uh, where there were eight uh, young men who were suffering there with tuberculosis. So he goes in, and, the, and there's one of these guys, in the name of Christopher, calls a pastor over, and he says to the pastor, he says, look, we are going to have a real Easter this year too, because we're going to get a radio in our ward, and we'll be able to hear all the services throughout the week. You know, the pastor said, great. Good Friday came, and the radio waves carried the invisible word to Christopher and to the others in the room. And that afternoon, Good Friday, uh, the pastor entered the ward again. 
Christopher called him over and he seemed to be more radiant than before. And he said to the pastor, it is Easter today. And the pastor being brilliant said, no it's not, actually it's Good Friday. Christopher was in silent for a while and he says, no, you don't understand. It is Easter today. And he took his emaciated hand and he pointed to his heart. And then it dawned on the pastor, oh, he has come to rest, to surrender himself, to believe in this Christ who died for his sin and was raised to life for his justification. And you know what they did for hours that afternoon? And he writes about this in his book. They worshiped the Lord together. That's what a believing person does. The following day at 3 a.m., the pastor was called back to the hospital. Christopher was just about uh, to pass away into glory. And he managed one last phrase. You know what it is. It is Easter today. It was Saturday. But it was Easter. And I ask you, don't leave here, please. With your disbelief. But leave here. Experiencing Easter. The resurrected Lord.